Ladies and gentlemen, and everyone else, especially those who are sometimes not very ladylike or gentlemanly, welcome to the integral stage. I'm your host, Anonymous Host, and you totally don't know who I am, so don't even try to figure it out. Today, I'm sitting down with Grizzly to explore higher, deeper, and stranger layers of perspective around pornography. This is a topic people like to explore on their own, often secretly. It's a topic that foregrounds the issue of what you should be able to see and what should be concealed, and an issue that provokes some suspicion among people who are otherwise devoted to spiritual, developmental, and transformative themes, as if it might be one of the bad topics relegated to the coarse, regressive, unwashed masses who are not truly capable of integrative thought and meta-level development or true human maturation. For all these reasons, we're in the Metaverse Witness Protection Program, taking advantage of these oh-so-clever disguises. Personally, what I'm interested in here is sidestepping what I view as false or disproportionate concern around this issue, probing for actual concerns, exploring the possibilities of healthy developmental and even spiritualizing usage of these materials, and also trying to understand more generally how the plausibly liminal meta-tribal intergalistas have lived through and felt about this topic. So I'm happy to be joined by my very special guest, who is presumably some degenerate subhuman misogynistic porn addict barely capable of stringing a coherent sentence together it's grizzly hello grizzly hey anonymous host it's really great to be here with you today my feeling is that there's real uh, disproportionate suspicion around visual cultural artifacts that graphically portray erogenous zones reproductive body parts and various thematic styles of real and artificial sexual performance yes there's an industry that doesn't always treat people well but that's also true of the candy bar industry and the oil and gas industry. And we still let kids ride in cars and eat Halloween treats. Yes, there's something provocative about sexual acts. But why do the images of these acts cause people to become hysterical when a child might get a pat on the head for reading about them if it was part of literature? There's a possibility of addiction and deviation from natural patterns. But that's true in online sports and watching the news. And we don't impose a special age limit for those. Those things are not, say, being denounced in churches. Crass people hang up pictures of barely dressed people in swimsuits, but not completely naked. Sophisticated people have erotic nude images, but not pornographic images. So all of this seems very strange to me, Grizzly. What's your first impression of all of this? Why is it such a peculiar category of response for people? Uh, well, I, I feel more confident. Yeah, I mean, there's a very rich it's got to be a very rich historical answer to this but since i'm a degenerate uh misogynistic porn addict grizzly bear I, <laughs> uh, I can't speak to that very much but i do know that the starting point for a lot of people in relationship to sex in the current moment is just very shameful so or and and just strong emotions in general and maybe unpacking some of those strong emotions that people have would be uh, would be fruitful because I don't, I don't think it's shameful for everybody. But whatever the historical reasons, the 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 outcome of that is that it's a lot more shameful, or it's a lot more uh, vulnerable, <clears throat> or it's a lot more scary for people to see naked images of other people. And to see explicit pornographic 
uh, images of other people rather than uh, riding in cars. It's easier for us to dissociate between the poor treatment of um, you know indigenous folks in Ecuador by Chevron than it is, and it's not even really the poor treatment. I don't think that's the reason people are uh, intense about pornography. I think if even if even if uh, you know there is porn where actresses are treated well and uh, there's more of a collaborative spirit and the director is you know, trying to get at something uh, deeply human or, um, uh, you know, supportive, supportive and ethical to human development. Still, people will, will have, look at that and have the same reaction. It's intense, too intense to, to talk about and play conversation and too intense to share with kids. So I'd start with the range of emotions that people experience now in relationship to porn. Yeah, it's a curious thing. Um, I don't know if there's another issue where people feel shame of a similar kind that they don't then feel the need to exert such social control over. Um, there might be a counterexample. Uh, one of the things that makes me curious is, is how much of this is uh, situated in individual personal responses and how much of it is kind of a collective mood of um, wanting the tribe to control the, the the secrets and mysteries of reproduction in a very ancient sense and that people might have a an immediate reaction to control that comes prior to any feelings around say shame yeah i mean i that's interesting to me too i because if we're talking about current um conflicted relationships with pornography we're at least implicitly supposing that there's a, a healthier easier uh more appropriate in various ways relationship to pornography uh that we could have collectively but it's not clear to me what that is actually uh it's not it's certainly not obvious to me that more openness or uh more frequent more public younger uh easier access to pornography of of every kind is the answer uh that doesn't automatically seem healthier to me one thing that um i one thing i would want to protect in relationship to sexuality and and yeah curious i'm not i haven't worked it out but i'm interested to talk about the implications of this for porn one of the things I would want to protect in relationship with sexuality is the sense of, and again, I'm curious whether this is true for everybody, but is a sense of this kind of sacred mystery, actually. Um, and this, this goes back to the intensity thing. You know, like, uh, it was certainly my experience, curious about your experience, anonymous host, Fox, you know, my first sexual experiences were emotionally intense they were exciting they were simultaneously mysterious and uh natural at the same time there was both a there was both a deep comfort and familiarity and a deep deep novelty to them they were already shameful and had to be hidden uh and uh you know i had already knew that that was the case without knowing why i knew that 
so there was that layer too. But one of my concerns with the with one of my interests in how we in changing how we relate to pornography would be how do we actually protect, maintain, extend, and deepen that relationship, that sacred, mysterious relationship with sexuality uh, throughout sexual development, uh, including into adulthood and through adulthood. And that doesn't automatically mean it needs to be uh, rare or hidden away, but sacred ritual, um, sacred behavior often is uh, esoteric, hidden away, uh, only brought out at certain moments of the year or certain uh, times of day or by certain people who it's their job to be immersed in sacred esoteric practice. Uh, yeah. So I think access, what accessibility for whom for sacred pornography would be a, a big question for me. Yeah. I think there's an open question as to whether um, the information technologies that are increasingly governing our lives create a situation in which it's not even possible to really think about um, any type of imagery, say, being concealed. So if we were going to think about how um, mystery could continue to be attached in a sacred way to actual sexuality, we would then need to think about the gap between pornography and mysterious sexuality being something that a certain way of relating to all of this makes available. Um, it's like I think our ancestors, or maybe even just a generation or two ago, might have felt that 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 the sacred, mysterious element is going to be canceled, be collapsed if people had access to all of this explicit material. But now people have access to all of this explicit material, and that doesn't seem like it's going to go away anytime soon. So the question would be, how do we relate to the difference between those two domains in a way that preserves that mystery? Like, how do we, how do we prevent um, the conflation of pornography and sexuality so that you can have access to pornography, which the society does, but without thinking that you're thereby gaining access to the sexual mystery, because you're not, it's some other domain of experience. Yeah, or, or, or you are, or that just, or, or just the distinction is made clear. Um, yeah, I don't think that access to pornography necessarily takes away the sacred but we certainly don't know how to use it or most people certainly don't know how to use it if something is going to be sacred and if we're going to cultivate a sacred relationship with sexuality in general and with pornography in particular then my starting assumption would be there would have to be there'd have to be a, a view for what that means and there'd have to be practices for uh yeah uh strengthening that that view and um it's not clear i mean i you know i, I tried to i tried to explore this years ago i i led an an eight week uh an eight week program in person program where it turned out me and 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 several gay men that wasn't the intention to for it just to be uh it was meant to be just men but it um, just happened to be most of the gay men viewed 
pornography together and then uh, tried to bring practices to our own use of pornography at home on our own uh, and then discuss those together to try to cultivate at base a healthier relationship with pornography, but uh, potentially even a, a deepening uh, relationship so with pornography. That's, that's a very curious thing to have done. Um, what were some of the practices you tried out and what were some of the conversational themes that emerged from that? <laughs> um, I tried to start very simply. So it was, um, it was basic mindfulness practices, uh, uh, you know, brought to bear across various aspects of the experience. So my, my basic uh, suggestion in the program was become more aware of as many aspects of the experience as you can and as deeply as you can. Become more aware of what you're attracted to and not attracted to and why. Uh, become more aware. And the why, the why part is already complex, right? Because there's already a bunch of emotions in there. There's already a bunch of thoughts in there and interpretations, um, identity things, past his, history things. So all of that, become aware, more aware of your own physical sensations um, in viewing and in touching yourself. If you're touching yourself, um, <clears throat> become more aware of your relationship and intentionality in those moments what are you called notice that what you're doing in each moment is a kind of practice that whatever you're whatever you're feeling whatever you're doing is strengthening that thing so treat it as such and ask yourself is this a thing is this an experience i want to be getting stronger and more habitual in my life or not uh, and then reflect on what relationship what intentionality what emotions what sensations what capacities you would like to get stronger and more habitual in your life and we and then we would talk about all of that the types of practices um i noticed myself gravitating towards would be uh, somatic first of all like really paying a lot of attention to the subtle interior body experience particularly streams of stimulation as they occur um, just any kind of attentional intentionality, like, are we, are you just sort of passively observing however you happen to observe, or are you making some choice about how you're going to place your attention in the viewing question of how you demarcate identities in the visual field has always been very interesting to me. For example, if you're watching two or three or, you know, whatever you're watching, are you thinking about one of them? Or are you thinking about both of them? Or are you treating the whole thing as an entity? That's always intrigued me to try to trick my brain into visually regarding all the participants as a single entity, because that <laughs> corresponds to certain kinds of non-sexual experiences of observation I've had about human beings. <laughs> the other thing is the question of identity and transference, like... Mm -hmm. The presence of which characters make you feel intrigued or uncomfortable, or, you know, if you're, if you're a man, how are you relating to the other man? If you're a woman, how are you relating to the other woman? Um, to what degree are the images showing up in your own experience as a version of yourself? And to what degree are they showing up for you as some kind of 
uh, other who's either seductive or maybe a little bit disturbing. Uh, I mean, even are, just, I mean, those are, I mean, those are fascinating. And I, I think that those are all probably fairly uncommon um, practices that you bring to pornography. I, the, but the fact that you, but, but I just want to highlight the fact that you, you treat it as a practice at all and are bringing intentionality to playing with your own, um, yeah, again, relational, intentional, cognitive, uh, you know, practice. You're playing with your own experience in order to cultivate something in yourself. That, that, that would, I think, unlock a lot already, just that, just that attitude, recognizing that that's possible and that it's worth the time to try that, the effort to try that. Yeah, and that's really interesting because that has, um, say, two possible routes. One route would be knowing that that's a possibility, being able to uh, conceptually discuss that possibility with each other and say, hey, this is, you could bring the frame of practice to this. Totally. But the other element would be what are the supportive conditions in a person's background that would lead them to improvise um, such an approach? Because I don't think anyone ever, you know, when I was <laughs> a teenager, nobody talked to me about bringing a context of practice to this. But there's clearly elements of, of what the cultural life and what the home life and what my physiological and neurological life was like that made it more likely that I was going to invent that for myself. And did you do that already before you had a meditation practice? I started meditation really early. So I had a number of procedures like that. And my sense of the background of reality was just that meditation practices were a thing since I was mm -hmm. maybe, you know, in grade three or something like that. Uh, also, I'd come across books on on Tantra, on uh, you know, like Western Tantric sex kind of Tantra uh, at a fairly early age. Um, and so I assumed there was some additional range of experiences you can have beyond whatever the, the conventional response pattern would be. Uh, so yeah. I guess I had those in the back of my mind, as well as being in a home that wasn't reactive and having mm. parents that were willing to uh, probe the edges of adolescent experience through rational dialogue rather than, uh, you know, assertive proclamations. Hmm. Hmm. Did, were you also talking about sex with your parents in an open way? Um, my mother would bring things up to try to be a helpful educator, but they were always uh, embarrassing and I don't know <laughs> if they ended up being useful to me or not. <laughs> But I, I will say that the the first time I ever got my hands on a pornographic magazine, and I was just at the tail end of the magazine culture. We didn't. It was a couple of years before <laughs> we we had just free flowing streams of digital imagery. Uh, so the first time I got my hands on a magazine, I very cunningly put it under a shirt in my closet. So that was no hiding at all, really. You are a cunning fox. <laughs> yeah. The next morning, my mother car talked to me in the hallway and she said what's the difference between erotica and pornography and i was like first of all i was aghast because i just realized what a stupid incomplete hiding event that i'd undergone but then i had a discussion with her about what the difference might be or not be and i think she felt that i was rational enough i was prefrontal cortex enough to be left responsibly in charge of that part of my life and so that kind of trust and that kind of um, 
the sense that it is to be handled within a rational, coherent, higher thought framework. Uh, I think that gave me a lot of, it gave me the sense that I could bring in thought and inquiry to that domain of my life. So it's not like we talked about it that much, but there was a strong implication that this was a place that you brought thought and curiosity rather than just behavior. Mm. Hmm. No, there's a lot, there's a lot there. Um, I, I'll just say, I'll just start the, I, it was also for me, I didn't think about bringing a practice attitude to pornography until after I had been meditating for a bit. And um, after, because of meditating and after bringing meditation into my life in all aspects already. So the, the kind of like the revelation of meditation after, you know, just uh, doing it during a meditation session when I'm sitting and you know, you're sitting on a cushion then became, Oh, I can bring this practice attitude to everything. Uh, and then it was easy to see, Oh, I could bring it to meditation. Um, and uh, yeah. So, and that, that itself I think is a rare attitude. And I think meditation is unique in that, you know, even people who try to adopt a growth mindset or who are, you know, you know, cultivating various things in themselves, various character development or strength or skill and in whatever ways. Meditation is unique in that you can literally be doing it every moment. So you can, it's ubiquitous. It, as soon as you start doing that, it becomes obvious that you can bring a, a practice attitude to everything that you do, which then forces this question of why wouldn't I bring it to pornography rather than why would I bring it to pornography? It's why would I leave it out? Um, and yeah. Yeah. So I think that, and, and that's, yeah. So the, and I think there's something there too with what you said about bringing in kind of a thoughtful thing, you know, a sense of inquiry to the pornography. I'd also, my, my assumption would be that, you know, even though lots of people talk about with their friends talk about the relationships that they're, getting into and challenges that they're facing in relationship um, talking about porn and porn usage. So, and, and even sexuality, obviously talking to your friends about the sex that you're having with people, I think is common, but talking about your use of pornography with people is probably not common. So I'd be curious. I mean, I am very curious about what the distinction is there between those two things. What do people think that they're using pornography for in the first place that it, tends to be a thing that isn't worth reflecting on or inquiring with or talking about. Yeah. My mind goes two places on that. Um, one is that there's a built-in cultural assumption of some kind of um, moral or status lowness to the process. And so they don't want to confess it because they feel like they're getting too close to uh, revealing themselves uh, as substandard like it's the opposite of instagram where it's representing yourself as as the the non-shiny life <laughs> the other part of it if i can remember what i was going to say <laughs> no i can't remember the other half <laughs> it'll come back it's you know what's in 
it's interesting that I still have this feeling about porn usage at the same time that I think porn itself is becoming more open, which is weird. Like OnlyFans, for example, I've been reading about OnlyFans a bit recently and the, the, the genres of mostly, but not only uh, women who open OnlyFans accounts and um, the, the culture that I've experienced around young people in relationship to other young people doing sex work like that, it feels like there's a lot more permission um, to talking about it, to, to it being a profession or, you know, a hobby or whatever. If it doesn't make you much, much money, which it doesn't make most women much money, but it doesn't feel like there's more openness to talking about our usage of that. <laughs> Going to OnlyFans, having particular, you know, favorites and, and how, how we masturbate. <laughs> yeah, this, this is what I was going to say a minute ago that I'd forgotten, which was in some ways, I think people are trying to protect a very delicate balancing act that's involved with their ability to um, arouse a functional mode in their body on purpose, right? Mm. Like you can imagine this actually being a pretty tricky thing, even though obviously monkeys masturbate and things like that. But to um, to arrange your thoughts and your focus and your emotions and your physical state in order to perform a certain performance and in order to feel like you're close to some kind of thing you're valuing uh, is actually pretty tricky. And I think a lot of people don't want any interference in that. And by uh, bringing in conversation or by bringing in some additional layer of their own psyche that might be inquiring or performing an intentional focus aspect, uh, I think there's a fear that you're going to lose the thing that you get off on. And I think it's similar to the fear of, of saying, like, science will remove the mystery and magic of the world. You, you know, if you try to explain the flight of the starling, you'll lose the divine aesthetic experience of the starling. I think there's this deep fear that we have that we'll lose our ability to access this, this, this arousal flow state if we bring in too many additional concerns or other voices. I, I love this. And I think that there, that highlights the distinction between the OnlyFans um, professional and the OnlyFans customer user uh, real strongly because on, the OnlyFans professional is a performer. And that's at least known and acknowledged, you know, even by users, um, although they might try to hide it from themselves. It is performative. The OnlyFans user, I think, is anti-performative. Like, again, going back to the sacred thing, it's deeply intimate. And there's, and it might be a fantasy, uh, but it's deeply intimate in about uh yeah, and uh, yeah, who you your identity, who you are, and and what your hopes and dreams are for your own um, life. Yeah, especially as as those relationships might go deeper. You know, I'm thinking about men who, you know, cultivate ongoing relationships with particular uh, performers. I think there's a lot in there that's yeah, that's very, 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 very personal um, and vulnerable. And the fact that people are trying to preserve that through secrecy 
yeah, I think strengthens this kind of this this underlying hidden sacred uh, aspect of of our own sexualities. Um, and and then then there's this question: Well, why is the sacred secret? Uh, does it have to be just talking about the sacred uh, and just talking about our most intimate? You you said you know you, you talk about it as an an, ara- an arousal state a flow an arousal flow state and I think what that leaves out for me is some kind of meaningfulness why are these experiences meaningful for people and what is it uh, in terms of the value of themselves and their own lives that they're trying to get out of their use of pornography. When you were running that course, I'm curious what sorts of commentary people started to bring up and, and what the experience of being in more overt conversation about these things was like, because I, uh, it seems like there's a lot of opportunity for people to be more conversant in a variety of ways on these themes, but I think there's also a possibility, uh, particularly within intimate relationships, that um, trying to be more open about these things can often be uh, more of a disturbance than an avoidance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that comes up for me is is a set and setting kind of frame. The men who participated uh, all because of how the course was advertised and because of uh, who it was marketed to, they all already had spiritual practices or meditation practices of some sort. So they were already deeply interested in self-cultivation. The other thing was that it was hosted at the Center for Sex and Culture in San Francisco uh, when it still existed. Sadly, it's no longer, which was known there for decades of holding both a very open and supportive and a very rigorous, uh, both ethically and intellectually, uh, uh, bring a very rigorous approach to sexual exploration. So, I mean, there was a big library uh, on the back wall of the room that we uh, were working in. So I think that those kinds of background attitudes were already present um, that made it made the conversations good. I think what people and how people's experiences, there was only positive feedback. Well, actually, that's not true. The negative feedback was I was showing pretty stupid, boring uh uh, uh, porn because I had very little familiarity with gay porn uh, for men, and so they I got some feedback like you could do better with the imagery that we're looking at together in the class, but the conversations were good, and I think it was I think it was just it was this was many years ago, so I'm not remembering specifically, but it was it was not surprising. I mean, it was a lot of like here. Are, here are my shames. Here are my fears. Here's, um, you know, here's, here's what happened when I tried to bring mindfulness to touching myself for 10 minutes. And it was all held with an attitude of openness and exploration, which I think was the most important part. So I think there was a lot of intimacy and, and the guys getting to know each other and themselves more deeply. 
we touched on the idea of the of the shame emotions earlier and mm -hmm. there's a there's an ambiguity in that for me I, I feel like ever since i was a kid i was aware of this argument that dirtiness let's say as a concept as a as an affective mood associated with sexuality was believed by a lot of progressive thinkers in the late 20th century as being an artifact of repression of social shaming uh, things like that and that if we were not so repressed and uptight and weird about our bodies then we wouldn't experience uh, a kind of mm, aggression and degradation and filthiness in mm -hmm. sexuality Mm -hmm. But I think that that all, for me, it always seemed like that was a bit suspicious, like mm -hmm. that was um, a bit idealistic on their part, and that there might actually be some of those qualitative flavors built in. Mm -hmm. And when I think about the Muladhara chakra, for example, it's it's not just a sexual center. It's also, you know, there's blood and feces and urine. Mm -hmm. Uh, for me, the the horror film is the perfect example. People go there to be titillated, but they're not big. They are seeing nudity and sexuality, but they are also seeing splatter and gore and terror and fleeing. And uh, there's this whole swath of different affects associated with this region. And there might be something kind of intrinsically uh, filthy, not, not in general, but as just one of the subtones incorporated in that region. Uh, and that we may mistake that for thinking that we're we're ashamed or worried or have um, internalized some weird social judgment. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that deeply resonates with me. And I don't think we would discover that unless uh, the social shame piece was uh, handled appropriately um, so that we could disentangle those two things. I mean, there's there's two things that come up for me. One is that sex is messy. Like there is, there is messiness and there's, there's, there is liquid, <laughs> there's blood, there is, uh, yeah, there's sounds that are not, um, you know, couth, <laughs> uncouth sounds in sex. And all of that's, yeah, it's just, it's literally messy then it's also kind of embarrassing, which is another kind of intimacy. It's like these embarrassing, messy things are happening with another person. That's not normal. There was also, I forget where I, where I heard this, but a distinction between terror and horror where horror is the, is the quality of, of like inside outness or boundaries being crossed or identity being um, broken in some way. And that is also uh, exactly what happens in sex. Uh, you know, maybe even in bad consen consensual sex to some degree, because of your desire to be intimate, very, very intimate with someone physically in a, and in a vulnerable position. Um, I mean, vulnerable, you don't have your clothes on right? You just are exposed. You're literally exposed. There's a physical vulnerability in that. Even if both people are, or all the people involved are not actually threatening or violent at all. But, um, but in good sex, it is absolutely the case that uh, you turn inside out and your boundaries are 
unfolded and you don't that's the that's a lot of the point which again touches on the sacred thing and this meaningfulness thing um so yeah i i i strongly agree with what you're saying and i think that um yeah unpacking that a lot more would be super helpful for people there's another issue here around hyper reality or something like that you know as as um depictions of sexuality have moved from um, simple arts to literature to stylized imagery to uh, digital imagery there's a sense in which uh, anybody who's familiar with the notion of astral planes and bardo realms and things like that might start to wonder whether or not um, we're we're peering into those zones right for the for these forms to start to take on the quality of flowing patterns of information and light mm. uh, it, it, you know it, it's almost like we're not seeing sexuality anymore we're starting mm. to see the realm of the devas or something mm. like that that might be depicted in tibetan iconography or some other elaborate ancient sacred style mm. that's oh i mean that that offers a big challenge to pornography also because, um, you know, I know, I know many women and some men for whom during sex, uh, a kind of, a kind of observer position is deeply entwined with not being able to enjoy, uh, the experience. Um, not being able to orgasm in particular, um, but just not being able to enjoy the experience. And the, in pornography, visual pornography is rooted in an observer's position. I think primarily because it, it emphasizes the visual and that's all that can be transmitted digitally right now. It doesn't emphasize taste or smell or touch. And uh, even when you're touching yourself, obviously there's a lot more physical sensation that's happening between people actually having sex than when you're touching yourself. And when you're having sex, definitely there's a visual component to it. But I think most of the experience and especially most of the experience that leads to these um yeah these these mergings these boundary breakings is about touch and smell um and sound in particular which is a if you're exploring that and if you're exploring that consciously and intimately it's very much like a psychedelic experience that has a certain kind of psychedelic experience that has that you're navigating yeah so pornography just might be missing i mean part of the issue is just pornography might just be missing much of what actual sex is in its representation well this makes me think about the uh, places where the line between pornography and sex blur into each other uh, and often those are places where a couple of additional uh, 
reality signifiers are folded in that pornography doesn't normally have like when and you know i I, i'm guessing you have some experience of this you're a couple years younger than me um whether it's um, sexting or long distance relationships where two people are masturbating together in in live video and audio feeds um how is that different or the same than pornography because it seems like it has this these additional registers of reality it's not quite the same as sex but in what way is it the same or different than porn when they both exist as um, streaming digital stimulation feeds yeah in your your question is raising another question for me too which is is the value if we were to take a yeah we should if we were to take a practice attitude for to bring a practice attitude to porn is it appropriate to see porn as a like to ask the question of how similar or different is it than sex i i think that's probably not the most helpful way to approach it rather than to say porn is a distinct sexual encounter uh what are its particular affordances obviously the comparison between sexes is necessary for that but rather but not to bring in the assumption that it's less valuable a sexual encounter than actually um having sex with someone um because it has it does have unique affordances so i think maybe we let's i'd like to um i'd love if we could come back to that question but yeah i mean i think the first thing that comes up about this spectrum between um, porn, live digital interaction with someone, maybe a professional, live digital interaction with a partner that you're in relationship with, uh, but long distance from, and then actual sexual experience is uh, one spectrum of that is spontaneity. And porn is the least spontaneous and least interactive. So spontane- spontaneity and interactivity. Porn is the least, actual sex is the most on both of those, I think. And that matters because I think it's, it, this comes to the vulnerability thing again. Um, the feeling, and again, the meaningfulness thing. You're feeling more intimate with someone, the more, yeah. When we say that, so when, when, we, when something is spontaneous, it also feels honest to us. The, the performative is both, um, it might be glossy, it, it might be extremely exciting, it might be beautiful even, but uh, we don't treat it as honest. You know, actors of any kind who can bring honest emotion through their performance, uh, we applaud them and are grateful for the hard work and the rare work of being able to do that well. Our, our um, experiences with people that are in our lives who we actually have relationships with, we have non-performative relationships with, the spontaneity is a kind of like behavioral, like, like uh, implicit or behavioral honesty. And um, so I, I think there's also a that, that's also a difference on that spectrum from born to, to sex. 
I like this notion of a spontaneity interactivity gradient. I think that could be a really useful conceptual tool in organizing a lot of this stuff. Something else that pops out for me um, around the question of meaning making is there's a kind of a sweet spot for people in terms of how many options give them a sense of meaning and control. Right. If, if they don't feel like they have any optionality, they feel trapped. If they feel like they have too many options, they feel meaningless. Um, uh, when I used to go to a video stores, <laughs> you'd, you'd rent one, maybe two, and then you go over to the counter and the, and the jerk at the counter would say, third one's free. <laughs> so you, now you'd go back and you'd wander around because you already found what you wanted. But now you're wandering around considering a bunch of things you already decided you didn't want. And it's exhausting. You feel totally depleted. You don't even want to watch your first movies anymore. <laughs> right? And there's something like that available in the in the digital presencing of pornography that's very similar to just ordinary scrolling, right? It would be the same with looking at the news on your phone. Or, and too much tooth, too many toothpaste options at the grocery store. Yeah, exactly. You, you find one and you go, oh, okay, well, then you've got a choice. You know, you know choice is great. I, I make an evaluation. And then I think, well, maybe is it really? And I check the next one and I check the next one. And pretty soon something is dead inside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it seems like that might even be part of how addiction is instantiated in terms of digital pornographic domains. Um, yeah, but it's, certainly a, it's certainly a deviation from whatever practice would enable maximum meaningfulness of experience in these activities. Well, it's certainly a challenge. Um, if you can overcome that challenge, it might be an affordance for cultivating uh, in an even more intense intimacy with your own what is meaningful to you. Um, but only if the choice making is not overwhelming if, or if you can make, you can get it to be not overwhelming, which is not, I, when I'm using porn, I try to find what I'm going to watch as quickly as possible <laughs> for this reason, uh, because it's, it's the, yeah, the choice overwhelm is awful and exactly not what I want to be in. There's an additional feature now. I mean, evaluating imagery or stories, if we're doing it through stories, a lot of people, uh, I think, get their porn through fan fiction these days. But there's a sense in which evaluating has always been a part of it, but now that's been officially instantiated in the kind of thumbs up, thumbs down universe. Um, I'm wondering if you ever find yourself divergent between the use of pornography to produce the kinds of sexual states that you want versus getting into the mode of just, I'm the emperor judging things. Right? <laughs> the, the pleasure becomes evaluating. <laughs> oh, that was good. Move on. Oh, that, no, no, not that one. And I want to have that registered somewhere. <laughs> um, one quick, yeah, that's a great question. And one quick caveat is I'm noticing that at least I'm speaking mostly about porn, that, you know, visual porn, mostly video porn. And mostly what I, my intuition about uh, straight men's relationship with visual, with video porn. Um, I feel like there might be meaningful differences here between women's use of pornography and, uh, and, and literary uh, pornography versus visual pornography. I don't want to dwell too much on that 
and just there might be differences. Um, my, yeah, it's, I don't play the emperor much. Well, you know, that's not true. I, it is still really important to me and it is definitely a big part of the process of, uh, yeah, engaging with, with porn for me that the emotional range that I'm experiencing in relationship with the, the attitudes that the attitudes, the behaviors, the emotions, the looks that the people are portraying is all a super, super important part of the experience. And I definitely try to cultivate, try to both explore and cultivate uh, ranges of emotion and relationship that are just, are easier to access that way because there's just, there's just more of it. So I can, I can, you know, there was a phase where I was into um, like cuckolding uh, stuff and I could watch, you know, um, (laughs) you know, I, I could identify, I could, I could try to, I could explore a whole bunch of feelings related to other men uh, fucking my partner or my wife in a way that I couldn't, I could be in that imaginary in a bunch of different versions, just way faster and more iteratively than I could be in my real life. Cause that's, that wasn't, you know, it was kind of barely happening a little bit, but not, and that's why I was in, that's why I was watching it. But you know, there's just a lot more iterations there uh, to explore. So uh, that's just one example. There's, there's, you know, there's a lot of different, there's obviously a lot of different attitudes and emotions and relationships with sexual partners that you can explore. So that's a unique affordance of pornography. Um, It raises a question about, is that real? How much are you actually learning about yourself and your own emotions? And how much are you actually widening your range and countering yourself, uh, becoming more comfortable with various aspects of yourself by engaging with a performance uh, that has a commercial, a very particular particular commercial goal. And my answer to that is not zero. <laughs> you are experiencing yourself authentically uh, to some degree. And so it's useful to work with it in that way. Yeah. Um this notion of being able to explore intensities and iterations of things that we're experiencing in real life, uh, perhaps even in a partial form, that sounds like it has enormous uh, possibilities for human self-exploration. But like you say, it depends on the degree to which those things actually become assimilated or actually become insight, which is not zero, but not a hundred either. Yeah. Um, There's another aspect to that, which is, there's a possibility of exploring ranges of potential stimulation sets that are not present in one's actual life. Like you mentioned, let, let's put uh, the notion of, of literary porn aside. You mentioned gay porn and things like that. I mean, there's a lot of people who only go to the thing they like, even though the thing they like unfolds and changes over time. There's some people who say, I'm actually curious about things that I don't like. I want to have a look at those. Mm-hmm. Then there might be a more elaborate version of that practice, which is 
I want to see if I can actually stimulate myself with things that I don't think I like. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what's what's your experience or approach to those um, levels of diversification? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not not a ton. I mean, I did. I have gone through a phase of trying to um, look at stuff that I wasn't attracted to, but I never tried to look at stuff that I wasn't attracted to and then try to stimulate myself in relation or in relationship, like try to discover arousal um, in it. Um, And similarly, I haven't really ever been that interested in like exploring uh, quote unquote deviance um, in any purposeful way. Like, like, you know, the the ragged edges of of human sexuality i've always been way more interested and have had plenty of material um internally to explore around my own desire sets my, like basically it's like what's an example like um very 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 basic common example do i like being submissive or do I like being dominant in a sexual experience? And then another layer deeper, what emotions are occurring for me when I'm feeling submissive and when I'm feeling dominant? Uh, Another layer deeper, what are the implications for those emotions in relationship to a relationship with someone? So for example, One thing that I've been noticing recently is that when I am using porn to experience a dominant relationship, um, a dominant sexual relationship, one of the things that I like about it is that it comes with a feeling of, and this is relatively recently, it comes with a feeling not of so much of being the emperor exactly, of like power but of care of taking care of this person. And I noticed that that has immediate implications for if I was in an extended relationship with someone that that feeling of taking care of would actually be something to grapple with in the relationship itself, not just in sex. Do I, is this, kind of taking care of someone is this emotion that I'm experiencing of wanting to take care. Is this a healthy version? Is this a belittling version? If it's a healthy version, do I have the, do I actually have the capacity to, to live up to this intense emotion I'm feeling in sex and wanting to cultivate in sex? Or do I need to be honest with about myself, about my own, limitation more honest about my own limitations to actually maintain that that successfully maintain in a practical way in the relationship this feeling of successfully taking care of someone what is their experience of being of being taken care of does that enable them to grow or not all of this i find actually present in the emotional experience of engaging with pornography and so that's so these things even though they're basic they're much more interesting to me um and that's mostly what i explore 
Yeah, a comment and a question. The comment is, you know, I, I think back to myself as a teenager, and I definitely wanted to experiment with connecting to pleasure patterns of things that I was not attracted to, uh, which half jokingly I describe it as a kind of greed. Like I, I didn't want people <laughs> having pleasures that I wasn't having. <laughs> but there's a there's a growth pattern into a perspective taking possibility there as well um, because there's a sense in which it's very superficial to be able to cognitively and verbally appreciate someone's values and say that you've integrated their perspective but there's a dimension and Zizek is very good at pointing out the you know psychoanalytic obscene supplement dimension to various ideologies and worldviews. There's, there's a dimension of perspective taking that relies on, on hidden, almost perverse flows of stimulation and enjoyment. Hmm. I think that pornography is a place where people could attempt to connect with pleasures of other types of people. And then that might be an important bridge to a, a deeper um, multi-perspectival kind of universe. I think we see that in politics where it's very easy to say, look, I'm an integral individual. I, I understand that uh, traditionalists and modernists and postmodernists all have important contributions to make. But when I see someone from one of these other mimetic tribes doing something like voting for Trump or something, I don't connect to the enjoyment that they're taking in that act, mm. the way they, the, what the, how they get off on owning the libs or something. Mm. I see that it's happening, but it's hard to connect with the pleasure. Mm. And it might be that Pornography is a relatively safe area in which people could try to access the perverse enjoyment aspect of taking the perspective of the other. Mm. So that's that's the commentary part. Mm -hmm. The question that comes back to this idea about care in relationship, which is very intriguing, makes me want to ask something like, you know, when or how have you found that pornography has been good? for an actual sexual relationship that you've been in and, and when and how have you found it to be not good for that relationship or some other relationship? I've never used pornography maybe have once or something. I've never used pornography with a partner. Um, so I don't know about that. Um, the, the, yeah, I, I think my answer, I have my, I'm unsatisfied with my answer. On the one hand, I think it's, it's just, you're just, I'm just tracking my own intentionality. And I think that's a very, that's just kind of a core thing. It's like, am I using pornography as a kind of escape from my own emotions in relationship to my partner? You could escape with a lot of things, but porn is one of those things. And so, um, I've certainly tracked, you know, when I'm using porn as an escape from the emotions that I'm currently dealing with in relationship to my partner. And then in that moment, the, the use of porn is not helpful. I've also used porn to try to explore, like I was describing before with the cuckolding thing, uh, things that were, um, happening in my relationship. Um, I've also used porn to explore things that I was desiring that wasn't in my relationship. And I think both of those have been productive. Um, uh, I, I think I have used 
I think I have done both of those strategies productively with relationships. Um, this, this thing that I keep bringing up around um, exploring, having the opportunity to explore ranges of um, types of relating that you just, you just don't have access to in the real life because you don't have, you're not sleeping with um, or dating as many people as you can experience with pornography or as frequently as you can with pornography. Uh, it's harder to know. It's harder to know whether, how that's led to my, how that's contributed or not to my general maturation and general emotional uh, intimacy and flexibility. I, I want to say that it's contributed, but it's, it's hard to, it's hard to know for sure. Um, but that, and, but that also brings up another point about this, which is that like, for me at least, engaging with porn fairly regularly hasn't seemed over many years, many, many years, hasn't seemed to um, change much the thresholds and requirements I need to get into either a sexual or uh, you know, romantic relationship, you know, you know, ongoing relationship with someone. I'm it's very that crossing that threshold is hard for me. I have not that I'm it's uh I don't I haven't been in that many relationships. And so I think porn has been a way to, like I said, you know, there's it's not just the sexual experience, it's the sexual experience and the implications about me and about relating with humans in intimate ways that are all present for me in in masturbating and looking at porn and imagining myself with those people. Um, so it has been an outlet and a way to experience all of that without being in, in real relationships. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. Curious to think about how much is generational and technological about all this. Like, obviously, uh, our species has had a lot of different ways of handling these kinds of materials. Um, seems like <laughs> it was a, something for the dining room in ancient Pompeii. Um, then it became a thing to be hidden away in the back room of the British Museum, lest, lest the uncivilized <laughs> poor people and women get their hands on it and go hysterical. <laughs> And then it was something that was found in early photographs and early film in the 1970s. There were there was pornographic movies in mainstream <laughs> movie theaters. Hmm. Uh, then hmm. There was a VHS era where it was there was this special room at the back of the video store. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and now there's a just this endless multifarious streaming of semi-professional, semi-amateur content. And I, I'm curious. Um, like how much of it do you think is generational? You know, when you look at people your age and people younger, uh, do you feel, do you have the sense that there's a different attitude about it than there might've been 20 years ago or 50 years ago? Yeah. I mean, I do. I mean, at least, I mean, it's hard to know. It's really hard to know these things. I think talk generational differences. One, it feels hard to know because sex is ultimately biological. It's so deep in us and and 
I think it's not just the act is deep, but I think that like what we were talking about around this distinction between social shame and a kind of uh, almost visceral horror, the social shame might be, you know, uh, culturally constructed and dependent on the attitudes and values of the generation. The, the, to whatever degree there is that kind of visceral horror thing going on, that's not socially constructed as much. And so that's the start, I think, is that I would probably, I would, I would probably wait the, that more universal, um, side of things a lot more in terms of defining our, our personal relationships with sexuality. I could be wrong about that. Maybe it's a 50, 50 thing, but, um, but it did, you know, it did say that there's this change in relationship and openness around sex work more now than I, than I remember, certainly when I remember growing up, I mean, you know, when you've got a, when it's like, when a bunch of your friends are on only only fans and it's fun and it's kind of a joke and it seems sort of harmless, which maybe all of that's true, but I'm not critiquing it. But when that's, when that's as common as it is, you have to have a different relationship with, with, with sex work. It's still not clear to me that people have a different relationship with mass, with using pornography though. Um, and with, and that's, I think what's more interesting to me. What I hear from people is, uh, concern that, uh, the, the massive availability causes people who are learning about sexuality to assimilate, uh, patterns of uh, of status and aggression and dominance and deviance uh, and i think there's some legitimacy to that concern but often those people don't go on to suggest what might be an alternative way for people to pick up a whole bunch of information about sexuality and its different variations because if there isn't an alternative then pornography is basically the only thing that's culturally available for people to freely explore those possibilities. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I also have a sense that a lot of people who, who have uh, a generally concerned feeling about, <laughs> about current generations and pornography don't really understand its variation. And maybe it's part of the algorithm problem is that people might drop into a pornographic site or even pick it up through cultural parody or something and they assume they know what the main content of pornography is mm -hmm. uh, and what they don't notice is like with everything else the algorithm is guessing something for you and mm -hmm. as you interact with it um, you're not seeing what everyone else is seeing so you can't really take a glance at it and generalize about the experience that everyone else is seeing because the next person might be seeing pornography with a completely different affect and social significance than what you're seeing. I don't know. I'm not that, you know, I'm, I'm not intimate with um, school, you know, sexual health programs anymore. I'm not intimate with parents. Um, uh, I don't know any parents who are, whose children are the age to be having those conversations with them now. 
Um, and obviously that would change depending on the subculture um, that we talk to. But yeah, I, it doesn't, I, I think the, the leverage here is uh, less talking about how are, what are people's current discomforts or, uh, you know, and with talking about pornography um, and, and more offering, offering an alternative because, because my general sense is like nobody's doing it well, almost nobody's doing it well. And, and culturally as a whole, uh, we're not doing it well. So uh, it seems like there's ripe uh, opportunity uh, for doing it better. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of leverage there. And I think I would start with this kind of question that we brought in at the beginning about how much openness and what kind of openness and, and how is it, how is that openness brought in and what kind of closedness and how is the closedness brought in in relationship to pornography for it to be as deepening an experience as possible and to, to inculcate in, in young people uh, this practice attitude so that they take on the responsibility and the opportunity of using porn in a deepening way for their entire lives, not just when they're in a kind of the cultural ritual education phase of youth. There's uh well, suppose we have about 10 minutes left. I want to, I want to flip the discussion a little bit because what I'm hearing you say sounds like a wiser way of interacting with pornography, which suggests to me a concept like wisdom porn, but wisdom porn, when I say it to myself, sounds like food porn, disaster porn. It sounds like a way of a way that pornography has now become colloquially used to describe a certain form of mediated experience of all different aspects of human life. So I'm curious how you feel about the idea that there's a huge palette of porns now of which only one type is sexual. <laughs> but I'm also curious about what you think, what would constitute wisdom porn? Right? If you were to dismiss a certain aspect of wisdom practice and wisdom literature as the porn version, uh, what would you point to? <laughs> um, I mean, just look at Instagram. There's a lot of wisdom porn on Instagram. There's a whole class of yeah, 20s to 30-year-olds, 20s to 40s maybe, cultural, creative, entrepreneurial class it's a weird class of people um global digital nomadic and you know so many people now are spiritual but not religious and and there's a version of that for that subculture which is which is uh it's a cool subculture i mean i don't like it what i'm saying is that it's it's seen as cool it's attractive it's beautiful it's it's glossy it's i think it does have a significant pull on mainstream culture um, even if mainstream culture is not totally aware that that's happening, where you'll have some, you know, self-identified witch or shaman or something 
dropping a couple, you know, wisdom bombs um, that are have become relatively trite uh, on backgrounds of them doing sexy yoga uh, on a beach. You know, that's a stereotype, but it's not. <laughs> there's plenty of examples of that, and that's wisdom porn for sure. And my concern with that is with all it's the same as with the porn across all of it it's a super normal stimuli that that is highly salient but directs your attention in the wrong direction towards the the um immediate presence presencing of beauty without directing your attention to the work required in yourself to generate the beauty that it's trying to represent the beauty of wisdom and the beauty that wisdom has the capacity to create in the world, but doesn't necessarily feel uh, like looking at that Instagram post when you're doing the work to become wiser yourself, often doing the work to become wiser yourself feels very uncomfortable. Uh, and that's not what the, what the Instagram posts or with any of these kinds of porn represent. I mentioned Slavoj Žižek earlier, and there was another interesting thing he said about pornography, which was, and this was mostly about the, the VHS cassette era of pornography, where there would be this uh, elaborate and painful storyline because it was poorly acted. They're not really actors. It was poorly scripted because they're not very interested in that part. And he would describe the... the the dramatic introduction to the scenario as a kind of penance that people felt they had to undergo a, a guilty payment for the pleasure that was to come. <laughs> and there are a lot of different cultures that have various ways of kind of paying off their pleasures. And it seems to me that that is part of what motivated me to take up more of a practice orientation toward it when I was mm -hmm. younger, which was that was to a very to me a reasonable, healthy, intelligently oriented way of uh, of making up for the fact that I was doing it or or satisfying this additional um, set of urges that would come along with that experience and make me want to uh, correct it somehow. Uh, so it seems to me that that might be very natural to have have the have the feeling of interest coupled with the feeling of a need to correct that interest somehow and one way to correct that or satisfy that impulse might be to take up a more deliberate practice life relative to these stimuli i think correct potential unhealthy expression is good it also raises a larger question about um earning uh sexual experience. So um, the Zizek example, watching the storyline as a penance, because you've done something wrong or something, so you have to punish yourself, flagellate yourself by watching this terrible storyline, I think could be flipped and say, and we should flip it if we wanted to ask what, what would be a wise approach to pornography um, at all ages and for a culture and say, and it, this is very closely connected to um, this could be deepened and, and closely connected to this, this question of what would be a sacred relationship with pornography and sexuality in general is what do you have to do to earn sexual experiences? 
um, what do you have to, what character traits do you have to demonstrate? Um, what sensitivity, what uh, willingness to face consequences and really integrate consequences? What intentionality, what control over your own intentionality, um, what control over, your, you know, all of these things. And I wouldn't, um, it could go too far, but I think that's a really valuable question. If, if you look at sacred anything, esoteric practice and sacred, sacred, um, sacred knowledge, uh, sacred ritual, there's always, even, even, even sacred ritual that everyone would have access to potentially like a, um, a coming of age, uh, transition ritual. Um, so often there is a, a, a demonstration process that you earned the maturity to, uh, to receive that, that wisdom practice. And, uh, so I, I would, I think we should consider pornography in that same light. Yeah, I think that's excellent uh, from two angles. One is, and it, both of those angles are mediated in my mind through the example of uh, addictive food or addictive consumption habits generally, because we might say, you know, we you should, probably shouldn't let little kids use digital devices. You probably shouldn't let them eat very refined sugar and carbohydrates either. It could fuck them up for their whole life that they may not be mature enough uh, to take in certain really intense or chemically modified substances yet. So there's a sort of proof of maturity before accessing these things that could be destabilizing. But there's also this deep sense of, of payment involved in maturation and in the sacred generally. And uh, I think that's something people should think about a lot that, again, to the food metaphor, we have a huge number of problems in super salient examples of processed sugars. And we didn't have those problems when you had to climb a tree and steal the honey from the bees in order to get super concentrated sugars, right? That there was a built-in modulating factor, a built-in skin in the game by virtue of the fact that you had to outlay some effort, some difficulty in order to gain access to these things. Yeah. It might be that that's part of the mechanism that naturally moderates this stuff and allows it to continue to perform a healthy and sacred function rather than a diseased addictive function. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's, I think that's really good. And I, you know, it brings up right at the end of our conversation here, it brings up this edgy, but I think necessary and already happening uh, thing about uh, sexual mentors, um, women and men and, and others who can, uh, who have the either informal or potentially even formal role of sexual mentorship for young people. And it would be their opportunity and responsibility in particular to set up challenges and for people to accomplish and to validate that they've earned a certain level of sexual maturity, um, doing that well. And I say that it's edgy because yeah, there's just, I, I, it's obviously edgy bringing consciousness to that, um, 
uh, uh, you know, would require a lot of sensitive conversation and, and all of this. Um, but it's already happening. You know, young, young, young men and young women uh, meet older men and women who initiate them into sexual experience all the time. And it's just unconscious at, at, a, at a cultural level, mostly. So it needs to be, um, yeah, consciously engaged. Well, this has been fantastic, Grizzly. Um, it's, a, it's a really interesting subject that could stand for a lot more investigation. I appreciate your openness and a number of the concepts you brought in, I think, would be absolutely necessary for conceiving a, a wiser, more developmental, more spiritually oriented approach to this material. So thank you very much. It's been a really fun conversation. Thank you. Thank you.